1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Journal of Women's History podcast. I'm your host for today, Mirelesi Velasquez. So welcome to New Books in Women's History, Natalie Lira. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss your new book, Laboratory of Deficiency, Sterilization and Confinement in California, 1900 to 1950s, published by the University of California Press in November of 2021. I'd like to briefly introduce you to our listeners, then we'll move right into the conversation if that's okay with you. Sounds great. So Professor Natalie Lira is an associate professor in the Department of Latina Latino Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she is also a faculty affiliate in Gender and Women's Studies. You can also find her work in ASLAN, a Journal of Chicano Studies, the American Journal of Public Health and Latino Studies. So thank you again, Natalie, for joining us today. Thank you. I know for me, it's an honor uh, to have you here today in so many different levels, right? Both intellectually, but also a personal one, having known you for quite a while now, now that I um, I refuse to count years, but we've known each other for, <laughs> we, don't for we don't have to count years, we but it's, it's a treat to be sharing this space with you today. Um, I was wondering if you would share with us a little more about yourself, your schooling, your upbringing, how you came became interested in pursuing historical research, and especially historical research that is at times difficult for many of us to unpack when we think about our relationship to our communities, um, what would you think of as your genealogy as a scholar?
0: Um, thank you for that question. Um... I'll say I didn't really think of myself as a scholar until later on in life. That's for sure. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago, a uh, daughter of the single mother of four. My mom's a Mexican immigrant to Chicago. Um, my two eldest siblings were born in Mexico and me and my other brother were born in Chicago, um, educated in Chicago public school systems. I always loved to read Um, I did well in school, but I was kind of like a, a, you know, mediocre student in high school, but my mother always really emphasized education. Um, She expected that we would go to um, college, although she, you know, didn't have the resources to kind of, or in the knowledge to support us in that venture. She was like, you're going to do it, so figure it out. Um, Luckily, I had older siblings that could kind of like guide me in that, and I, I followed my older brother's um, path and went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana for undergrad. Um, and it's really there that I kind of started to see myself as a, an intellectual, I guess. I was had the great, great honor of um, being mentored by amazing Latino studies scholars, Um uh, many of them who I was later able to call colleagues, who I am now able to call colleagues, um, uh, Ricky Rodriguez, Lisa Gacho, uh, Julie Darling, Jonathan Inda, all of them played a key role in kind of um, encouraging me to see myself as a scholar, as a potential scholar. Um, I, Uh, while I was an undergrad, um, participated in the McNair um, program. And so the McNair program is a program that um, supports underrepresented students in uh, pursuing graduate degrees. And so that's really the first place that I even uh, learned about what a PhD was and what a professor does and what academic research is. And that's really where I got the economic and the administrative support to kind of apply for graduate schools. Um, And uh, I wound up um, going to the University of Michigan for graduate school. Um, I completed my master's and my PhD in the program for American culture at the University of Michigan. And I didn't really go into it thinking that I would be a historian. I never intended to be a historian, actually. Um, I wanted to uh, look at going into graduate school. My plan was to kind of do an analysis of uh, discourses around birthright citizenship. So I was always interested in race and reproduction, but I wanted to look at more contemporary discourses around birthright citizenship and kind of this nativist, um, stereotype of anchor babies. Um, so that's what I was going in, you know, wanting to do. And then my plan was completely disrupted when, uh, the first summer of graduate school, I, um, had the opportunity to work with Dr. Alexandra Stern who, um, is a scholar of eugenics, had just kind of finished um, writing and publishing her book on eugenics in California, uh, she invited me to, she was looking for someone to help her uh, go through this really amazing archive of sterilization requests from California. Um And uh, it was an archive that she had found at the tail end of of doing research for her book. And so she wanted, she was looking for a graduate student to help her kind of go through these medical records. Um, And I started working with her. And that's really where I um, started, you know, becoming immersed in this history of eugenic sterilization in California and, 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 and when I started to kind of be interested in this longer history of race and reproduction and this history of, um, you know, the, the politics of reproduction um, and still discourses around Mexican origin, women's reproduction, but at, at an earlier period, a much earlier period than I had anticipated. Um, and it took me a while actually to like look at, Think of myself as a historian because I hadn't been really formally trained as a historian, but I got wonderful training um, by Dr. Stern and um, my mentors in graduate school, Dr. Maria Gutierrez, uh, M- Maria Cotera, Elena Gutierrez, who is a sociologist but also writes historically as well. Um, and, and yeah, that's kind of how I came to to. Be um, interested in the history of race and reproduction and to kind of, um,
1: you know, write and think about this history of eugenics and eugenic sterilization. You know, it's interesting because I'm also someone that considers themselves uh, an accidental historian, right? And so I think about how um, kind of like bringing us into talking about your book, right? How the opportunities and the conversations and the support that we have from our communities and from our families, and then from scholars that have also had to navigate these spaces, help us to help push us into these conversations, right? Which you know, when we think about relationship to community and we think about community, uh, our relationships to families, right? It brings us to your book, right? What are the possibilities for those of us who our lives aren't interrupted by this kind of violence, right? And, and especially, you know, when we think about these genealogies and our relationship to spaces and history in very particular um, ways. So I appreciate your response um, in terms of what got you here um, because it takes us to who doesn't get to be here which in, in many ways is foundational to your book, right? I wonder if you can then um, move us a little further um, to talking about, you know, you talked a little bit about how you got to writing about reproductive justice, right? But where do you see your book fitting into this larger historiography, right? Especially, you know, um, a conversations around how you came to the subject of, of Pacific colony, which for many of us, even for those of us who do write or have experience, you know, talking, engaging with these conversations, it's a new topic, it's a new space to kind of um, not just historicize, but kind of re-remember uh, if, if we can think about it in that way. So, how did how did you get um, to Pacific Colony?
0: Yeah, so um, I I got interested in this particular um, institution through my interactions with this. Eugenic Sterilization Archive. Um, and so again, you know, going into graduate school, I I was of course influenced by, you know, the reproductive justice scholars that we all know and love, you know, Elena Gutierrez, Dorothy Roberts, Ricky Solinger, who, you know, now that I think about it, like while a lot of them were writing about some contemporary issues their work is also extremely embedded in history, right? And I think part of the reproductive justice um, framework, um, an integral part of the reproductive justice framework is an assertion that um, history matters for understanding why um, people's reproductive experiences are different. Um, And so, you know, I came to um, Pacific colony through looking at these sterilization requests. And like, I already had an interest of course, in the experiences of Latinas in particular. Um, and so when I first started going through this, the sterilization requests, you know, I was working with Dr. Stern and our, our initial, um, you know, goal, um, because, to to kind of put this into context, right, California is the state that performed the most sterilizations in the country, right? Approximately 20,000 people were sterilized. And the archive that Dr. Stern found was um, basically the sterilization requests for approximately 20,000 people. So it's a gigantic um, trove of records that were held on, I think it was um, about 13 microfilm reels. And so, you know, of course we weren't going to go through, I, I, one graduate student, wasn't going to be able to go through all of these tens of thousands of records in one summer. And so the first thing that we wanted to do, given my interests and given her interests, was to kind of confirm what historians had already been hypothesizing, which is that California's eugenic sterilization program um, was targeting um, Mexican origin women. So given the racial landscape, the racist landscape of California at the time, given the racism embedded in a lot of um, eugenic policies, which are things that historians were already writing about, folks that were you know talking that have written about eugenic sterilization in the past kind of articulated this hypothesis but hadn't really had kind of data or records to prove this right and since we had these sterilization records one of the first things that we wanted to do was kind of see if we could prove this claim right that Mexican origin women were targeted disproportionately for sterilization in California. And so we did that by doing a surname analysis. Um, And so my job was kind of to go through the records um, at, we looked at um, three institutions in particular. um, And um, we were looking at kind of monthly ledgers that had people's names Um, And then in the process of doing that, Pacific Colony really stood out. Like it was clear in doing that surname analysis that something was going on in this institution um, with specifically young, mostly teenage Mexican origin women and men, right? I was seeing a lot of young, um, Mexican American actually born in the United States, a lot, a lot of them born in California, um, men and women, um, that were being sterilized in this particular institution. And I, you know, I was really trying to figure out what was going on here. Um, and so, um, you know, it went from kind of I thought this was going to be a chapter in my dissertation. It wound up being the entire dissertation. Um, I, I looked at Pacific colony, but I also looked at another institution, a similar institution called Sonoma. Um, and I, I, I worked mostly with the sterilization requests for my dissertation. And then when I was, you know, working on the book, I really expanded um my um, research to, to try and understand what was going on in Pacific Colony in particular. Because again, it seemed to be a very, um, an exemplar in the state for kind of the racist and ableist and classist um, gendered dynamics at play in, in the steril- eugenic sterilization program. Um, and I, you know, I tried to find, um, information on the institution and there wasn't very much. I I found maybe, um, you know, one historical kind of article on Pacific Colony. And then the rest of the information came from studies, um, of people, um, master's students in education and social work, um, in psychology, students that were doing their research in Pacific Colony, um, so they would go do their research at Pacific Colony and kind of give a history of the institution. So that's kind of how I learned a little bit about the history of the institution, and then, and then I I um, got a lot of information also from like legislative hearings. So arguments made about why Pacific Colony need to be to exist and why it should be established, and so from there I kind of pieced together this history of Pacific Colony and um, you know, uh, tried to figure out, um, in more depth, the, the demographics of the institution, both in terms of sterilization, but also admission, um, and then also like what it was like to be institutionalized, right? How people arrived to the institution and what their experiences were like being confined in the institution and how people dealt with
1: confinement, um, and sterilization. You know, there's a way in which um, reading it. Well, it, reading it was. It's such a rich book, right? In the way in which you go into detail around framing personal stories, right, of these individuals, right, for the folks that you could name, right, because of the records. Um, it was both surprising and not surprising as you read the text, right, which is interesting. Where you know, um, you know, I would be shocked by some of it, and then I'd be like, oh okay, this makes sense, right? Especially understanding, you know, these larger historical narratives, right? And you remind us of that in the introduction, right? That it's important to contextualize the particular moment in which these historical processes take place in order to really understand the intentionality and consequences of the ways, in the ways that bodily difference and capacity were ascribed meaning into Mexican, uh, Mexican and Mexican-American men and women, right? In California, which I, I can't remember reading, um, this type of history that also frames around Mexican-American men's bodies in a very, you know, um, complicated way, right? Because when we think about the history of sterilization, we usually ascribe that history to women's bodies, right? But there was something going on in California that um, that was unique and not a good way, right, in terms of what was happening. I wonder if... Um, if you can talk a little about how you want readers and even practitioners to understand the text through that lens or about understanding history um, and the processes of of what's going on um, or the social processes of what's going on in California nationally, these conversations, how that informs what then becomes specific colony and the ways in which the eugenic movement in California then becomes almost a roadmap or a guide for what then is taken out of the state into other places across the country and the Caribbean too, right? Because that's happening in Puerto Rico during this time period so maybe you can kind of help uh, his, you know historicize what's going on um, in that space that then informs what led to this um, particular um, this particular this particular history that you write about around Pacific colony mm-hmm.
0: yeah I think like I think what's really important for people to understand is like, eugenics I think eugenics gets um a lot of times understandably people will kind of think of it as kind of like a flashpoint um in the timeline and of course historians have argued that like eugenics there isn't like a strict end to eugenics right the eugenic ideas continue but when I was doing the research I found that also like you know eugenics was really successful because it built on already existing and and very long held, um, racial, gendered class and disability biases, right? Like the kind of the, the, the ingredients for eugenics to be successful, um, were already there. Um, and so I actually like, I'll take a step back because I think it's important to point out to like the implicit assumption in eugenics is that there are just naturally occurring, right? That there are individuals and populations that are inherently inferior and defective. And then there are individuals and populations that are inherently superior. Um, and, And just that premise, right, is you have a parallel with white supremacy here. Right. Like, and some will say, well, like, yeah. And because eugenics was a science and, and it was a science taken that was taken very seriously. People will say like, well, yes, there's biological human variation. And of course there is human variation, but eugenics really codified the um, social meaning and the social value ascribed to human variation. And so this is kind of like the policy side of eugenics, right? Saying that it's not just that there's this difference that we can classify as inferior and superior, but that these differences have social implications, right? And that inferior and defective people, it's not that they just kind of need extra support, but that they're a social threat um, and they're a drain to society, and they are, you know, they, you know, biologizing large social problems, right? Um, that poverty, that immorality, that crime, all of these so- social problems that humanitarians and, you know, all these people want to um, address, that these things are caused by inferior and defective individuals, and because the source of social ills becomes people's bodies and their biology that means that social interventions and policies need to need to affect the body right and so biological interventions like sterilization like confinement and like imprisonment become necessary right and they become justified and so reproductive control um you know, becomes a legitimate project of the state. Um, And that, you know, is legitimized by the Supreme Court in the 1920s with Buck v. Bell, which is the Supreme Court case that makes um, compulsory sterilization um, permissible. Um, And and the key line is that it's permissible for the health of the individual and society, right? So as long as there is like a, a societal rationale, then it's permissible for the state to act in this way, right? And so, it's a broad framework that is novel in the sense that it, you know, is is um, you know, is mobilizing science and 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 um, these new scientific um, methods like statistics and genetics and things like that. But it's actually repeating kind of. Racism, right? It's repeating arguments over already existing arguments about white supremacy. It's repeating um, arguments that back different colonial projects. And so, you know, this broad framework of eugenics fits in the racism, classism, sexism, and ableism of the late 19th and 20th century. That's why it takes off Um, for a lot of people, right? There were, there are naysayers, right? There were scientists that were like, this science is faulty, right? There were people that were against it, but it becomes popular because if we think nationally, we have post-Civil War, um, Jim Crow segregation, um, continued colonial projects, uh, of displacement of native folks, um, influx of immigrants from less desirable countries, free, you know, Southern, Eastern Europe, um, Latin America, industrial, industrialization, urbanization, labor uprisings. And so eugenic, m- eugenics mobilizes scientific discourse to justify inequality and maintaining a, a certain status quo. And so, you know, it fits these larger discourses and it also is malleable enough to fit kind of local contexts. So for example, in, um, Iowa or in in the Midwest, folks that are targeted in eugenic, um, programs, eugenic sterilization programs are low income, rural white folks that are struggling, right? Um, uh, immigrants, European immigrants that are seen as come from less desirable countries, right? And then as, as my book kind of shows in California, it fits in this kind of um, um, uh, racist context that um, situates Mexican origin folks as um, like the defective populations, right? Um, and the dependent populations. Um, and so, so yeah, it's very, it's flexible Um, and, and, and eugenicists are just very, um, successful in, um, convincing legislatures, um, and, and different states to invest in these programs. Right. And, and their argument is convincing. It's like, we want to, the only way to help these people is by, you know, preventing them from reproducing. The only way we can better society is by preventing these people from, uh, for, you know, further contributing to poverty, crime, immorality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, Pacific Colony is like the, an exemplar of that.
1: Yeah. Framed around these conversations, it's almost like when you're, when you're reading uh, the narratives within the book, right. Especially from, uh, from policymakers, from practitioners, it's around this narrative of care, that they convince themselves that they care about these people, right? And so then care becomes um, a framework for them to justify what they're doing, right? Um, and then it's a way in which then care becomes a form of violence, right, within that space, Um And, you know, and one of the things that I know that I spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of time discussing with my own students in particular around the possible methodological interventions of their research, right, which is something that weighs on me as well with my scholarship is the potential impact that our work can have, right, good or bad on larger communities. And across your text, you remind us of the investment by scholarly entities, right, individuals, institutions, and you name these institutions, you name these individuals who um, are complicit in what's happening, right, who are active participants in supporting and framing the policies and narratives that then led to the sterilization of close to 20,000 individuals in a matter of decades, right? Um, Their complicity was astounding, right? And I mentioned earlier, yet it wasn't surprising, especially um, how you just kind of Historicize what's happening, um, not just in California but nationally during that particular moment. It's not surprising that then the eugenics movement then um, attaches itself within these larger narratives. Can you talk a little more about how much thinking and collaboration went behind the institutionalizing of policies that led both to the de- incarceration? Because I, you know, it is incarceration, um, even though it's 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 labeled as um, you know a. a A place of care, right? You know, that's what they're kind of framing this, right? But it's still incarceration and the sterilization of Mexican and Mexican-American men and women in California, right? Uh, Which this is a great reminder that it was not, again, another reminder that it's not just women, but it's men that are, um, you know, being impacted and targeted within the space, right? So maybe, you know, can you talk a little more about how um, these entities were all collaborating with one another, um, especially scholarly entities and institutions that then led to um, Um, you know, the harm and the violence um, that was occurring within this space.
0: Yes. And and Malie, you said it perfectly too, because it is, it's um, care is a, a, a word that is thrown around during this whole process. Right. And also something that folks would often, um, describe this work as is humanitarian, like in, in arguments for constructing Pacific colony, like the argument was like, this is a humanitarian effort, right? Like we, you know, have to build this so that we can, you know, um, uh, contribute to, Uh, resolving like these defective populations problems. And the the argument was that, you know, that especially with kind of like charities work that folks could not be that supporting people directly, you know, giving people, giving low income people, people who are struggling financial support was contributing to dependency and delinquency. (laughs) Same, same arguments we hear today, right? Like that, that giving people money, you know, helping people survive poverty, that's not gonna, you know, that's just gonna create more poverty somehow, right? Um, And that instead of putting money in people's pockets, giving people money and giving people the support and the resources that they need to survive, and, you know, make independent choices about their lives, instead of doing that, we need to pay other people money, we need to pay professionals money, right? We need to pay people who are doing this care work money to manage those people, right? And so it's a shifting of funds. Um, And yeah, you know, one of the things that really blew my mind was kind of like, in the early phase of doing this research because then later on when I you know learned more things and like you said, like I, I was having these reactions that you had too where I was kind of like shocked, but then I was like, not really. Um, but one of the things that was you know eye opening was how large of a network um, of people it took to to really make all of this happen, right It took researchers from all different types of fields to um, create a body of knowledge that would support legislation that would convince California legislators to spend money, lots and lots of money to buy property and build an institution. And not only that, but hire, you know, professionals to staff the institution. Um, and these are folks from, you know, the field of education, from the, from the field of, um, psychology, from field of juvenile, um, court systems, um, uh, social work. And a lot of these are nascent fields too, right. In the in the progressive era, this is when we have like social workers becoming the social, the field of social work becoming, you know, more popular, especially among, um, uh, middle-class white women, right. This is one of the few options that they have, um, to, to see themselves as professionals, um, Same thing for what becomes like these like eugenic social workers or field workers, um, Uh, The juvenile court system is kind of coming up in the late 19th century, um, and they're all working, they're all talking to each other, and they're all working together. Um, And so, you know, again, getting the institution built required a body of knowledge, um, a local network in California, but also a national network. So, you know, the legislative report that I looked at that was um, put together in support of Pacific Colony had experts in California, but also experts um, in the East Coast and the Midwest, right? Um, Staffing the institution, you needed to have um, people to take care of the education department, you needed to have um, folks working in the hospital, you needed to have um, uh, staff that would you know, manage the people that were confined in the institution, you had to have a superintendent. Right. Um, and then of course you have like the work that it takes to police communities. Um, so one of the principal ways that young people, um, were committed to Pacific colony was through the juvenile court system. Um, and so that meant that, you know, um, Police officers um, and educators, as well, were the ones that were kind of flagging youth to then be kind of on this path, right? To bring them into the juvenile court system, to bring them before a judge, to have a parole officer determine that they, you know, might need to take an intelligence test, right? And then to have a psychologist test them, right? And then determine that they needed to be in Pacific Colony. Um, the networks were mostly local, but they were also um, national. And so, in my book, I talk about um, one case uh, where, for example, um, uh, social workers were discussing whether to institute whether they could institutionalize um, a young Native um, man who. Um, was and the question was like, who was going to pay for him to be institutionalized? Whether it would be the money would come from the county or whether it would come from the federal government, and whether they needed to work with the federal government to have this person institutionalized, right? Um, so yeah, there were so many players, um, both you know, before, during, and even after, um. So once people, uh, you know, P- Pacific Colony had this uh, attempted to kind of put as many people as they could on parole, on what they called industrial parole, um, and, and that was placing them in low wage um, working positions outside of the institution often doing domestic work or for young men they would work as ranch hands. Um, some of them would go work at private sanitariums. Um, and so that work you know also involved having social workers follow people even after they left the institution right um, And so so a lot of the money went to these professionals um, who made their careers, um, off of, you know, managing these people that were viewed as dependent and defective. Um, and, and and you know, one of the arguments for Pacific Colony was that it could potentially turn a profit, that institutionalized folks could work while they were confined in the institution and maybe they could, you know, grow... Um, you know, vegetables and do farming and then sell it. And then maybe the institution will be profitable. That never happened. It never happened in any of the institutions, but a lot of people profited from, you know, Pacific colony existing um, financially, right. And socially. Um, uh, So, so yeah, that, again, that was like one of the arguments of, of eugenics that professionals needed to be empowered to manage the bodies, the lives and the labor of, of people that were unfit um, in the process in the process of trying to, you
1: know um, eliminate them, right? You know, and it's interesting because when you when you mentioned network, white women become a network on their own, right, in terms of their complicitness in the way in which they're engaging and navigating the space and, and um, embedding their own views of how they themselves were going to benefit from the movement and, and their participation with within it. Right. Almost it almost becomes a form of upward mobility for them because the lens is no longer um on them. And I appreciate that you impact that, um, in, in the book, right. And, and lead us in that conversation. Um, cause again, you know, there's so many agencies and individuals at play here. Um, and it's no coincidence, right. Of how complicit schools and education, um, are in creating an opportunity to create systems to further harm uh, racialized and marginalized bodies, right? Because you talk about the ways for some of the individuals that you you um, write about in the book, that the schools are the ones who are labeling them um, a particular way that then open up the door for them to then be um, incarcerated, right? And in, in, within this space, um, and I keep using the language of incarceration, because there is no choice, and there's no sense of agency, even, um, even when it was clouded through this lens of choice, right? When what does choice look like in the absence of choice for for families? Um, but I also think about how um, this mindset and ideology influencing the, the eugenics movement is simultaneously playing out in the framing of schooling as well. And California in the 1930s and 50s is central to the narrative, narrative right? Because there's, there's court cases, there's uh, legal battles, right, around schooling for Mexican and Mexican-Americans um, within the space. Um, especially around the kind of schooling that they were going to be able to receive. But I know we talk a lot about what's being done to the population, right? But schools um, and then in your book, right, you know, the, the families and the individuals who are part of it, um, these conversations also become these critical spaces for resistance, right? So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the ways in which um, the individuals, um that you're writing about but also the, the population that you're writing about also enacted agency and acts of resistance even within um, this very complicated history.
0: Yeah, and and you're so right that also to keep referring to it as incarceration because it is what what it was, right? And and in fact, like the the language of incarceration is um very much present in the dis- description of the people that were confined in Pacific colony as inmates. They were, they were talked about as inmates, right? Um, and, and even the language of parole, for example. Um, and, and I think one of the things that became clear in, in writing the book is kind of this intersection of um, like a carceral and medical logics um, at at Pacific Colony. Um, but yeah, and and you're right, you know, I, I, even though it was kind of sometimes hard to locate in the archives, it was always very clear that people were fighting every step of the way. Um, so every time that I would go through, um, and, you know, a different part of the Pacific Colony archives, or, you know, one of the archives that I went through was, um, uh, governor Earl Warren's papers. And he has different folders on the different institutions, um, and the folders on, Uh, Pacific Colony and on other institutions were filled with letters from parents, you know, complaining, um, complaining that they couldn't get their um, children released from the institution, um, complaining that they, that their child was being um, abused at the institution. Um, uh, You know, I think folks did Everything that they could with the resources that they had, um, and and I want to say on the other hand, there were also letters of parents complaining that they couldn't have couldn't get their children into the institution because I want to also highlight that like there were people that had um, children that had needs, right, that had medical needs that needed to be addressed. And unfortunately, Pacific Colony was one of the few places that people could go um, to address certain, um, you know, um, severe medical um, needs or severe physical impairments. Um, And so, you know, the, it was clear that you know, at different levels, folks did what they could um, to advocate for themselves and to resist both sterilization and confinement. Um, And so that looked a a lot of different ways. It looked like parents writing letters, it looked like parents seeking legal counsel. Um, It looked like uh, folks while institutionalized deciding that they don't want to, um, you know, follow, um, you know, the paid staff's orders, right. And, and defying people's orders. Um, it looked like folks, uh, escaping the institution altogether. Um, so that's one of the things that I write about and extensively in, um, my fourth chapter, the role of escape, um, in the institutions and how that was one of the few ways, um, that folks could completely, um, you know, separate themselves from like this overwhelming power that institutional authorities had over them once they were confined in the institution and that escapes were prevalent and people escaped repeatedly, um, and often in groups, right. That they collaborated together to, to escape. Um, And so, you know, part of it was like looking at uh, thinking broadly about what um, options people had in in these situations. Um, Like, for example, for parents, um, in the process of, of being committed to Pacific Colony, you become a ward of the state. Once you become a ward of the state, parental authority is non-existent right like you 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 lose your authority over your child once your child becomes a ward of the state and so once that happens you know what recourse do you have um once you're institutionalized right you you can't make a decision about whether you want to leave or not right so then what recourse do you have um, and so that's really kind of how I had to think about questions of agency and questions of resistance. Um, um, but, and it, and it was difficult. Um, but it was also, um, in an important, um, lesson, especially looking at kind of the legal cases. So there were a number of legal cases that I talk about in the book, um, you know, where, Uh, Parents or youth um, tried to either uh, file legal suit to prevent a sterilization or sue sue the state after a sterilization was performed, and all of them were um, unsuccessful. And so, you know, part of that was like kind of like a confirmation um, of like assertions that reproductive justice um, scholars. Um, often make about the efficacy of the legal system in, um, you know, preserving and furthering people's um, reproductive autonomy, right? The fact that like the courts are not effective for everyone, right? Um, That particularly, you know, people of color, women of color, um, disabled folks, low-income folks cannot rely on the courts to um, help them preserve their reproductive and familial autonomy. Um, And that was really clear. And so, you know, it was like looking at these failed cases, but also like reading in them, the fact that, you know, reading them as evidence of resistance, but also as kind of you know, further evidence for this argument that reproductive justice scholars make um, over and over again. And the kind of urging that we think beyond um, the legal realm as like the most important realm for finding justice and and progress and all of that.
1: You know, and that's, that's um, there, there's so much in your book, right? But also getting us to think about how resistance is complicated, right? Ideas and questions around or how we frame agency is complicated, right? But then more so, especially for those of us who are navigating these spaces in our research that the archives are complicated spaces too, right? And I know it's something that I'm constantly thinking about and kind of engaging with and processing, right? That, that the stories and lives of dispossessed people, the violence of historical and physical erasure what what many of us are confronted with when we enter archives, right? Because they weren't created to document our histories. They were created to documenting the harm that our com- our communities encounter in their day-to-day lives, right? And, and in many ways, we archive trauma in the work that we do, right? We're haunted by it. We become the ghosts in the archives, You know, borrowing from Eve Tufts' work, uh, Cynthia Harmon's work, thinking about how we navigate these spaces, right? And we're then haunted by these stories, right? I know reading your book, I was haunted by the story Valentina Cordova and her family, right? Um, you know, an example of how generations of a family um, were harmed, right, and faced violence within these spaces, right? Um, and and even though when we walk out of those rooms, right, when we're doing research, we're not taking any physical boxes with us. We carry that with us when we walk out and we have to sit with it and process it, right? Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about how you navigated the archives, right? Knowing that what you encountered or were going to encounter was unearthing a history that we, of course, need to know and grapple with because it's important history, but it's tied to a community that you understand and know in many ways, right? That many of us are intimately connected to the things and the people in the spaces that we write about. How did you engage with the archives and navigate those spaces?
0: Ooh, it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard, honestly. Um, I think. And, it, and it, ta- it you're right. It takes a lot out of you, um, especially when you see yourself, your family, your community in these histories. Um, you know, a lot of the young people in like reading their lives and reading like the things that happened to them that led them to then be incarcerated in Pacific Colony and then sterilized are things that you know my cousins have done right like are things that you know it's just like so easy to see your your family and people that you love in these experiences and it's it's really difficult and it does take a toll i'll say you know i think it took i think a part of the reason why it took me a long time to write this book because I had people telling me like it's ready it's ready like I, I went through a lot of years of like this book is ready like put it out like get it out it never felt ready and that's because I did have to sit down and process it and so part you know that that processing happens in layers like for me like part of it was like first layer understanding what happened you know what was Pacific Colony? You know, my like figuring out how to do this history, figuring out like the, this the stories, the um the the broader context, the local context, because um, I'm not from California, I'm not from Southern California, and so like figuring that out too, um and then the next and then and then giving myself some time to breathe because it it does take an emotional toll, um. And then the second part is like deciding what story I wanted to tell in all of this and what was important and who I wanted to be in conversation with. You know, I had a lot of people like asking me why I didn't talk about like Foucault and biopower in the book. And obviously like that's important and like Yes. But also like I, I wanted to make decisions about which what scholarship I was gonna be in conversation with for this history. Um and and like part of it is um like wanting to honor the histories of trauma um in a way that feels um productive, because you're right, a lot of times we're like documenting this trauma. And I'm with you that I, I try to be kind of very aware of like, how I'm profiting, like, this is my career too, right? You know, and I want to be very aware of like, um, how I am treating these people's lives. Because um, these are real people that I'm writing about. And so, you know, like the the process of engaging with the archive was very layered for me. It was it was a process of understanding, and then a process of um, decision making decisions about what I where my voice was and what where my um, where my investment in which stories lie, um, and then part of it was kind of figuring out how to, um, you know give people not give people their humanity back because they always had their humanity but have a sense of humanity and, and like um you know like show that these were real people with real lives um so that was really important um and and that that really happened kind of apart on a, in a different sense. Like I I actually went through three readings of the Pacific colony sterilization requests. Like the first process was figuring it out. The second process was like figuring out the language of the discourse of defect that was in it. And then the third process was going back in and trying to read against that language to, to recover some semblance of people's lives and the way that they resisted an agency. Um, And so, but it was really hard and it does take an emotional toll. And I'll say like my next project, I want it to be much more uplifting and not be so, so upsetting. Um, Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at. Although I'm not sure if I've been successful in that because my next project is going to be about consent. Um, but we'll see. (laughs) Um, um, but yeah, thank you for that question. I think it, it, and I think you're right. It's, it's really difficult for, for those of us that, that write about like these histories of trauma and and see ourselves and our, and our families and our communities in these histories.
1: Yeah, and you clearly don't walk away uh, from these projects unchanged, or you really never walk away from these projects, right, and, and kind of our responsibility, and, and you said it, you know, perfectly when you called it almost a recovery effort, right, in terms of what you're doing, um, and I know as a reader, um, I didn't walk away unchanged, um, you know, from reading the text, and, and it was something that I had to kind of put aside and, um, and, and kind of walk away from um a little bit, you know, bits and pieces, you know, but I'm thankful for spending time with the text. But I'm also thankful, uh, Natalie, for spending time with us today. Um, I know, again, for me, not just as a colleague, but as a friend, it was an important conversation for us to have. But I, I do also want to say thank you uh, for the care and love and resistance that is embedded across your text, right? I know for those of us who come from um, the communities, from some of these communities who've ex- experienced these history, and I'm saying that as a Puerto Rican yeah, who's very familiar with the history of sterilization, when I think about the archipelago and the history, um, you know, across that, um, we recognize the need for, um, for this work to be written, for this work to be done, to move us out of the footnotes of history. And you did such a wonderful and beautiful job in doing that with this text. And and we see the care and the love um, that went into it. So I want to say thank you for joining us today. Um, And I can't, um, you know, I look forward to seeing what comes next in terms of your scholarship and the work that you're engaging. So thank you again um, to the Journal of of Women's History for allowing us the space and time to be in conversation today. So thank you. Thank you, Meli, so much for this conversation.